Well, good morning, everyone. If you did not happen to see that video this morning or you would like to see it again, we will play it when the service is over and everyone is dismissed. It will be playing again. And it also is on our website under uh, the About section, or if you're from Canada, the About section. Um, so it will be up there for a little while, and you can watch it uh, there anytime you'd like. Uh, but thank you for everyone that participated in it. It was incredibly uplifting. So thank you very much. Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews, the first chapter, and last week I told you that the first chapter is really on setting up the differences between Christ and angels. And you might be wondering, why in the world does this author have to make such a, a strong case that Jesus Christ is superior to angels? That's a given. But in this day and age, especially in that first and second century of um, the Jewish religion, which obviously influenced Christianity, there was a lot of worship of angels and um, superstitions surrounding angels. So the author knew that if he was going to get the Jewish community on board with who Christ is, why he is unique, and why he is superior, he had to go against this notion that angels were somehow almost just like God. And so he's using chapter 1 to really set the record straight about who are angels in relationship to Jesus Christ. And I said we were going to have a real little quick um, summary, maybe, on Scripture's teaching about angels. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized I have 32 points. Uh, and that's just some of the over 300 mentions of angels in Scripture. And I don't think I can get through 32 points about angels and then get back to Hebrews chapter 1. So what I did is on this little sheet of paper up here that you can come and get front and back side. I have 32 points about angels. If you are interested in what Scripture says about angels, here is a great jumping point. It's not everything, but it's a great little jumping point for you. After the service, you can come and get it, and I will not bore you with a lecture on angels. You can just get bored on your own and uh, read through it on your own leisure. It will make for incredibly good study time. So if you're wondering, hey, what do I study this week? Pick up that, look up the scripture verses, look at the little phrase that I have in front of it, and I think you're going to get encouraged, and I think you are going to find that there is a lot of influence that movies and songs and culture has on your understanding of angels from a biblical perspective. It is very different. Hint, when a bell rings, an angel does not get its wings. That's just one of the things. All right, so you might enjoy that uh, list of 32 different things Scripture has to say about angels uh, for some other time. We are going to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews 1, the author is again stating the case why Jesus Christ is far superior to angels. And he starts in verse six, uh, 7, 8, and 9, excuse me, 7, 8, and 9, this idea that Christ is the creator king, angels are not. Angels are not sovereign. Angels do not rule. Angels have not created. Angels do not give people purpose. But Christ gives people purpose, and he sovereignly rules over all things. And listen how, from Psalm 104 and Psalm 45, the author describes it. Of the angels, he says, so God says this about angels. He makes his angels winds, gives them purpose and his ministers a flame of fire, giving them a purpose. Verse 8 and 9, 
But of the Son, he says, of Jesus Christ, your throne, O God, attributes the title God to Jesus Christ. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 7 gives a, maybe a cryptic view of angels, this wind, this flame of fire, but it really has to do with their purpose. They're given the purpose of getting the message that God has out to people, out to whoever it is, the message. And that message changes from time to time. There's well over 300 references to angels in Scripture, and there's lots of different messages that the angels give people, sometimes in a very physical form, like Gabriel or, or Michael, very present forms of a message. Angels never give Jesus something to do. Jesus gives angels something to do. And when you have that authority structure of you're the one giving out the commands, you are the one who is superior you are the one who is in charge. Angels are given purpose. They never give people purpose, but they're messengers. Whereas of the Son, this sovereign rule of kingship is beautiful. Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The eternal nature of his throne, the eternal nature of his rule and reign, it never ends, it never was ended, it never was in question, it never faltered, it never was weak. His throne, his position of authority has always been secure and eternal. It is rock steady. It never was created. He never had to gain that power or authority. It was his. Why? Because he's God. That power, that rule, that reigning is his by nature. Cannot be said of the angels. It is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom, it's forever. His rightness to rule and reign is good and forever. And he rules and reigns with rightness. We never have to question, will his decision be good? Now, we may question, and I would suggest that we get rid of this idea, we may question whether or not his decision feels good to us because his decision will always be good. His decision will always be right. But we're prone to question that, aren't we? We're prone to question his sovereignty in our lives. We're prone to question what he does in our lives. We're prone to question even his word. Did he really say this? Does he really mean this? Does he not know that culture has changed and society has changed and we've evolved and we've become more compassionate and generous and kind? Has he really said right and wrong, truth, holiness, justice? Has he truly said that? According to God, yes, he has said it. And according to Jesus, yes, he has said it. And every time he speaks, it's with rightness. It is good. It is exactly what we need is his words of comfort, his words of correction. It is always right. Of the angels, never says that. Angels don't rule and reign forever. Angels are created beings. 
by God. And in that verse 9, beautiful words of comfort. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I wish that could be said of us, that we have always had our character that loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, because every time we sin, we reverse that. Every time we disobey God and go our own way, we're changing that up. We're loving wickedness and hating righteousness. Oh, to have a sovereign king ruling and reigning over us in every inch of this created universe, saying everything I do is right, everything I say is good, and I stand against unrighteousness, and I stand against wickedness. No matter what it looks like, no matter how subtle it is, no matter how big it is, I make my stand. That's Jesus. He makes his stand on what is right against that which is wicked. And he has this position then, because that is his nature and character, the position of being anointed, the position of being king. I know that anointing can have a very charismatic mood to it in Christian circles, but anointing is, well, it's biblical. There are very good times and reasons why anointing takes place. And in a sense, I would even make the case that your baptism was a type of anointing, a separating you from simply earthly bonds to a heavenly relationship with Jesus Christ, acknowledging that in your baptism. But anointing happened all the time, especially in the Middle Eastern culture, when a new prophet was established by God, when a new king was established by God, when a new priest was established by God. They would take olive oil and literally pour it over the person's head. Odd in our day and age, really kind of greasy, I suppose, but it was a sign that this person had special favor. If you were able to take something of worth and value and just in a simple way pour it over someone, it was a sign that that person was uniquely appointed by God for that task. And God says of God, that is Jesus Christ, I'm anointing you. I'm putting you in that position of power and authority. Beyond anything else, you are glad, good, happy, satisfied in that role as the creator, the giver of purpose to angels, and king. Um, side note, and I guess this is pretty important uh, as we get into the book of Hebrews deeply, um, like I said, most of these quotes in chapter 1 are from the book of Psalms. But the author does not quote the Hebrew Bible. Ooh, I better follow that up, right? But the Greek version of the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament was uh, obviously written in Hebrew primarily, but along the lines it was translated into Greek called the Septuagint. And so they had two different translations. They had the Hebrew translation and they had the Greek translation. This author is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. It's much like if you're quoting from the King James and someone else is quoting from the NIV, you both go to that same verse in Psalm 110 and you go, well, they're a little bit different. So they may be a little bit different from what you may have 
in your Old Testament because our English translations of the Old Testament are primarily taken from the Hebrew Scriptures, not the Greek translation. So that's just, uh, that's a nerdy moment. Uh, it's probably no consequence. But if you're trying to look up the verse in your Bible, you're going to go, wow, it, the, it says it a little bit differently. That's because they were just using different translations to get to the point. It means the same thing. There's no change in doctrine. There's no discrepancy or error. They're just using a different translation to bring about the same point. So he quotes from Psalm uh, 104 and Psalm 45 in this context and promotes this idea of Christ as superior to angels. In fact, in Psalm 103, verse 20, it says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Look at that relationship between the angels and God. What is that relationship? It's one of obedience. The angels obey God. God does not obey the angels, but the angels obey God. Why is it so important that the author of Hebrews is stressing this point for 14 verses that angels are not God and God is superior to angels? Why do they have to keep stressing it? It may not be because we are in danger of worshiping angels, okay? Because that's idolatry, right? When we worship something other than God, it's called idolatry. But we may not be in danger of worshiping angels, but there is a tendency in our heart, is it not, to worship things that are not God, to put other priorities in our life that we trust in, that we hope in, that we wish for, that we find strength in? Of course there is. So while we may not be struggling with worshiping angels and thinking that they're all powerful and almighty and that's who we need to pray to and, and rely upon and that's who protects us, no, 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 no. But we are prone to put other things in place of God as a priority. The early Christian church, especially made of Hebrews at this time, was in danger of putting angels in that spot of idolatry. So don't think for a moment this does not apply to us or that you don't have a problem worshiping or praying to angels. Come on, Tim, that's just crazy talk. That's, we're way above and beyond that. But we do put our health, we do put money, we do put relationships, we even put bottles of all sorts of stuff in place of God. And so this warning is for us. There is nothing that should take that place of worship and supremacy and kingship and creatorship of Jesus Christ. He and he alone is superior to everything created, including ourselves. In the next two verses, or three verses, excuse me, 10, 11, and 12, Christ, again, is described as everlasting and unchanging, while angels are not. It says in verse 10, and he's quoting out of Psalm 102, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, roll up, like a roll, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, 
and your years have no end. Can you think of anything that doesn't change in this world? It all changes. Remember that time in it was the late 70s, early 80s, when, uh, well, some of you may not remember this, uh, when Coke decided to come out with their new tasting version of Coca-Cola. Now, I am, I am a hard, true and tried Coca-Cola man. In fact, I know it embarrasses my family when we go out to a restaurant, and on the rare occasion that I will get a soda, I will ask the waiter or waitress, do you have Coke? And they will reply, oh, no, no, we have Pepsi products. To which, with great arrogance and pride, water, please. <laughs> that is how much of a Coke fan I am. I won't even go to my second two, Dr. Pepper and Root Beer, because they missed it already when they don't have a Coke product. So, no, water. No ice, no lemon. Just plain old water. I'll suffer and have water. I remember when Coke went through that incredibly terrible, horrific marketing decision to change the flavor after like 100 years to something like Pepsi, super sweet. And it was a complete failure. Complete failure. So much to the point that I think less than a year they came out and said, okay, no more new Coke, we're going back to the original formula. Then, of course, that was a great marketing plan. Original formula is back. But there's change that happens all the time around us. I saw a picture of myself um, when I was maybe about two months old a couple months back. And wow, I changed. It was, it was remarkable. I look, I'm like, the kid didn't need glasses. He was still plump, still had no hair. But other things changed. Things change all the time. There is nothing that lasts. There isn't. And there's some sadness in that when you go back to an old neighborhood or you go back into an old schoolroom that you went to, and wow, it looks smaller, darker, dingier, and it's falling apart. And you long for those days the way it used to be. God doesn't exist with that concept. He does not live in the concept that everything changes because he does not change. The way he was a million years ago is the same way he was 10 million years ago, before the beginning of time. And towards the end of time, in the eternity future, he's still the same. There's no change. And I don't get it. Because everything in my life is about dealing with, coping with, managing, and securing the least amount of change possible in my life. Because change is hard, and change ultimately reminds us, it ultimately reminds us that we will die. Everything does. Everything falls apart, including ourselves. It'll one day, in natural ways, just give up. But not so with Christ. Christ, it says of him, is everlasting and unchanging. 
He not only created and laid the foundation at the very beginning, the heavens and the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. Why is that a big deal to us? Why is that such a big deal that while we change and the heavens and earth pass away, he doesn't change? Why is that a big deal? Why is that important? Oh, it is so important. Because when we get to life's last change, death, you are going to really, 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 really want to make sure that his promise of you being with him and seeing him as he truly is, the moment of your death, you are going to pray and hope in the fact his promises do not change. You see, when it says he doesn't change, that means everything he's communicated is true and right, and everything that he communicates will happen, including we will be with him, including we will be resurrected, including there will be a new heaven and new earth, and it will be glorious, including everything we read out of Romans, I mean, Revelation chapter 5 a few weeks ago. All of that worship and praise and glory will still be ours because he's not changed. His word and his promises are secure and forever and ever. Amen. It doesn't change. And in a world and a life that constantly faces changes, some good, most of them not good, he is our one constant, one constant of rightness, the one constant of what is wrong, and the one bit of consistency that his word will indeed take place. It is secure and right and good, and it should give us incredible hope. It should allow us to face that great last change of life, not with sadness or fear or sorrow or angst or anxiety, but we should face it with absolute brazen confidence that when I die, I will be with my God forever. And I will be changed more into the image of his son than I ever dreamed was possible in this life. No angel can promise you that. No idol can promise you that. Money can't promise you that. Fame can't promise you that. Stuff can't promise you that. Health can't promise you that. Relationships can't promise you that. All of those things change. They can be here one day and gone the next, but not so with Jesus. He was here yesterday. He's here today. And he'll be there tomorrow, unchanging in his uprightness and hatred of wickedness and his rule over all creation does not change. In Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verse 12, I'm just going to read two verses here. It says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame, and those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. 
For they have forsaken the Lord, the foundation of living water. Now those are challenging words. Listen to those again. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is a place of our sanctuary. So Jeremiah knows where his hope is. It's, it's in God's presence. When it talks about the sanctuary of God, it's talking about in his presence. And then in verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth and as dust, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. You see, as beautiful as it is to realize we have hope and his word is secure, we often think of that only in terms of pleasant things. Oh, we like to talk about eternal life in pleasant terms. We like to talk about him being with us in pleasant terms. We like to talk about him making us good in pleasant terms, that his promises are true and amen. But his promises are just as true if you reject him. They are just as true if you deny him. They are just as true if you put him at arm's distance and say, you have no business in my life, I know better. His promises are just as true. He's not going to change his mind on that last day and go, oh, you know what, I was just kidding just to see if you were going to, yeah. There's no just kidding with God. His word is his word. Both those promises that are pleasant and those promises that are hard. No angel gives those promises. Only God does. No idols can give those promises. Only God does. Well, you know what? I guess things can give you those promises, but um, it's not going to happen. They're going to fail you every single time. Every single time. And then lastly, in verse 13 and 14, uh, we have these. Ending of the chapter. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Again, showing his superiority, the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels, over idols. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Out of Psalm 110. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Two things, and I guess I have these in two different points on the slides, but we're going to combine these two things here at this moment. Christ has promised victory. The angels do not have promised victory. And the promised victory that Christ has from God the Father is that in the end, Jesus wins. He wins. And he wins radically. Because not a single one of his enemies escapes. Not a single one of his enemies gets off the hook. Not a single one of his enemies sneaks in. Not a single one of his enemies can rise again and create a rebellion. Not a one. They are all ultimately sentenced for their crime of denying God, living for themselves, and loving idols more than the Father. They are all judged for their sin and their rejection of the gospel. They are all judged for the hardness of their heart and the deadness of their ways. They are all judged for the filthiness of all their good works. They are all judged to the heart and core 
of their being. And they cannot escape it, delay it, or buy themselves off. It is true and right judgment. And I know that there can be some that say, Tim, that's harsh. And maybe even say, although you'd never say it out loud, it's unfair. Don't be that person that challenges God. Don't be the person that thinks you have more compassion than God does. Don't think for a second you're more fair than God. Don't think for a second you can judge the heart more than God. Don't think for one second your view of things is superior to his eternal view of everything. We are but a vapor. Here one day, gone the next. Who are we to judge eternal weighty matters of heaven and hell, of life and death, of righteousness and wickedness on our own? Don't, don't try to be God. You can't. Because you change. Because we're sinners. Because we, we are completely undone as created beings before a sovereign God. Far better when we start to have those questions of rightness and wrongness that we're making. Far better we be like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Zip it. Far better. Because we have Jesus Christ as our advocate that speaks on our behalf. And as he speaks, the Father looks at him and says, every one of your enemies, Jesus, is going to be destroyed. You are going to stand on them and rest your feet on them. That is how undone and surrendered they become. Every single one of them. I want to end in Revelation chapter 22. We're going super quick through this. Verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to turn to Revelation a lot during this series because Revelation just has so many glorious images of how Christ is portrayed. I have to. I have to go to the book of Revelation often. And we're going to go to Revelation chapter 22, just the first five verses. And as I finish this, I'm going to have the band come up and we're going to close in our last song. But I want to leave you with these words in Revelation, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me, aha, another angel reference. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. 
there will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what the sun accomplishes, that no idol and no angel can even come close to. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the ministry of angels in our lives and in the lives of those of Scripture. But Father, we are more thankful for the greatness of power, of resurrection, of life of Jesus Christ, for all of his goodness that he's shown to us both today and the promises of tomorrow. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to the beautiful, wonderful things in our Savior the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. In his name, all of God's people said, Amen. until that day of redemption when faith becomes sight. It is a great, glorious thought. 
Remember, if you want to see that video, we're going to play it again. Um, maybe come front so you can hear it a little bit better. Otherwise, make sure you pick up one of those yellow sheets on the back if you're interested in coming to Thankful Tuesday. Until then, God bless and have a great week.